Okay, hello everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Martin Zahr from the Goethe, uh, Goethe Institute, Goethe University of Frankfurt, uh, who is going to answer the question, what is social philosophy? Yeah, thank you very much. So, thank you very much. I'm very, very honored by this invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. Actually, this talk was the longest that was planned in the entire span of my career. So two and a half years ago, I accepted this invitation, which was quite a while ago. And I said, no, I have no idea what I will do. I'll tell you later. But in the end, basically what I was thinking about at the time is what came out. And my talk, which is trying to answer the question, what is social philosophy? And if you have read the paper, you will see the answer is geared towards the idea that what is social philosophy for me, maybe not in general, but what could social philosophy be, a certain philosophical practice that I'm <coughs> trying to exercise. And this is what I came up with, and maybe this is not controversial, maybe it is, and I think my contribution will be more conceptual, or let's say architectonical, if that's uh, an English word, I don't know. That is, I'm not proposing you something like a theory of social philosophy, but I'm trying to propose you some concepts and some notions which I think might be essential or at least helpful to articulate a certain philosophical practice that could be called social philosophy. And there might be others, of course, but I think this is one, and I think it makes sense, and I think it leads somewhere, and we'll see where. As many of you know, the professional philosophers at least, social philosophy is a rather young and not very well-defined subfield of contemporary philosophy. And one might say that if it is a specific, a particular subfield or meaningful subfield of philosophy at all, this might mean that it has specific objects. But I think it's more reasonable to think about social philosophy as something that is a perspective, that starts from a certain set of questions, not from objects, but questions, and then poses a certain set of questions in a certain perspective, namely from the perspective of the social. Therefore, social philosophy, I think, is a way of looking at philosophical objects, and these could be the objects that other strands of philosophy, like the philosophy of logic, of cognition, of action, also have. But the social philosophical point is the very perspective in which we treat these objects as social. So let me propose or describe or elaborate one model of such a practice of philosophical thinking, one form of social philosophy, as it were. And as I said, I will do this following the remarks just given, not by way of naming specific systematic achievements or results of social philosophical thinking, but by sketching a conceptual grid, a constellation of concepts, some of which already appear in my subtitle, order, practice, subject. And I think these are tools that enable a certain philosophical reflection on and research into the social. So this is a more methodological enterprise, not meant to exhaust the whole range of possibilities. Rather, is it a way of accounting for one specific practice to do, let's say, social philosophy, and maybe this is what I find congenial, this is what I'm trying to do. This proposal proceeds in three steps, and the outline of the talk will follow the structure very closely. First, I propose to treat society less as an object, more or less well-defined, less as a distinctive zone or separate sphere, but as a constellation. That means a coherent set of relations, what we in German called Zusammenhang, 
that can appear in different forms and appears rather differently on these three different levels. Second, I hold that on these three levels there appear three forms or figures of the social as phenomena or fields of power. And this move or this perspective turns social philosophy as a whole, one might say, on a rather abstract level, into the practice of an analysis or one might even say critique of power. Third, in all of these three fields, the reflection on these phenomena of power lead to processes of self-reflection within society and reflections on the possibility to transform, to alter or to modify given social relation. It leans, that means, to a reflection on the possibility of individual and collective action, changing the very social itself. And this, for me, is, it leads to the question of politics in a rather wide sense, and we will talk about this. So in all of these three steps, social philosophy comes rather close to other forms of reasoning, sociology, for example, on the first plane, or general social theory or social ontology on the second, political theory certainly in the third step. But I think it's the coherence and constellation of different concepts and questions connected to them that for me constitute a specific approach or a specific practice of social philosophy <coughs> that is not particular in its objects, but as I said, in its perspective. So my first part is called <coughs> three levels of the social. And the first level I call, maybe not surprisingly, order. Asking what society is means posing a what question, an ontological question, asking about the defining features of the entity called society, maybe even the place within the bigger picture of other entities. And the intellectual history around the concepts of polis or cosmos, ecclesia or respublica, or what since Machiavelli has been called the state, later sharply differentiated from civil society or société civile, all of these are elements of a conceptual prehistory of the modern question of society and its specificity and its separation from nature or from divine will, but also in its separation or antagonism to political institutions in the narrow sense. So since the mid-18th uh, century, uh, excuse me, we have, in a way, the possibility to distinguish between politics in the narrow sense and society in the wider sense. Because since the middle of the 18th century, that means more or less around the time of Rousseau, the term society gradually acquired its modern meaning and contour as a concept of totality, and it will never, I think, lose this trait. Even the many laments today that social theory has lost its proper object of reference in late modernity, a claim that, for example, Lyotard or Baudrillard have leveled against the Marxist tradition, or Luhmann has leveled against the Weberian tradition, or people like Ernesto Laclau have leveled against classical social theory as a whole, are, I think, in themselves part of a history that thinks society as a figure of the whole or of totality. So I propose to take the question of society as a whole seriously, but not literally. Because already for classical social theory, from Rousseau to Durkheim to Weber, society is not a container, not a box separable from its content, with a clear locality, with clear borders, or with a clear identity. But it is a type of relation, a form of the human in the form of collectivity, a social form of the human, we might say, namely being socialized. And Vergesellschaftung, or Vergesellschaftet, is Weber's term for this, what makes a society that everything within it is part of that society is, uh, everything that happens within that society is part of Vergesellschaftung. 
So on the most fundamental level, therefore, we might say society, the term, refers to nothing less than this fact of social determination, of social ordering or regularity, of all that happens in a society, as it were, or with and by members of a society. Society shapes, structures, and determines what members of a society can do, what they can do and how they learn to do it. It structures and determines their agency, their possible range of actions. And for this reason, society is or appears to us as theorists and, of course, also to the members or participants of a society as the very fact that in a given society things happen a certain way and not differently that in a given society are, there are specific forms of education, professions, consumption, relations to nature, to history, and so on. All of this appears to the one describing and even to the one entering in a society as a set of facts, namely the fact that social order or order exists of a structure that is there and that's determining. And this is, we might say, where social philosophy begins to ask and to pose specific question, namely on the level of society as order. Second, this first level of analysis and description of society as order or as being ordered or as being ordering might be fully adequate and certainly irreducible to other facts about the social. But of course it runs exactly the risk of reifying and substantializing society that advanced theories of the social have always tried to circumvent. With only a slight change of perspective, we can shift from the fact of order to the processes of creating, maintaining, and sustaining these very orders. Behind every order, we might say, lies a universe, a myriad of acts of regularization and institutionalization that create social order, but these acts are themselves social acts, social interactions and communications that refer to, for example, education, the formation of habits, social exchange, cooperation, the division of labor, forms of conflict or conflict regulation. We might say with Talcott Parsons that all of these elements are media of the social. In any sense, they are the very forms that socially create the social. They are actions in the strict sense, things that can be done, and in this sense, they are what we now call practices. So on this second level, after the level of society as order, society appears, we could say, as nothing else than a set of related practices, a zusammenhang of practices, as we can say. And this, of course, amounts to commonplace in our post-pragmatic era that takes so many cues from Wittgenstein, from Heidegger, or from Duhain. Nobody would deny this practice aspect <coughs> of society. But I want to insist that it constitutes an essential and necessary step for any ambitious social philosophy, just realizing that to talk about society means to talk about its being practically instituted, its being brought into being. To talk about society means to talk about the scenes, forms, and contradictions of not only being, but doing society. So to extend the perspective from order to practice does not revise but reinterpret the first step where society was appearing as order, as a fact placed before the members of a society. In this second step, or on this second level, the members themselves appear as participants, producers, maintainers, and sometimes even transformers of this very order. Their actions are themselves constitutive of what they can then accomplish or experience as fait accompli or as social facts, as an external fixed order of practices, And this is what in many social theories, and Balibar is just one name that came to my mind, 
that is often described in terms of the dialectics of structuring and structured institution and instituted constitution and constituted are thought also important for philosophers like Castoriadis and social theorists like Anthony Giddens. Third, the third level of the social. On a third level, moving downward, arises the question of the elements of the complex <coughs> of practices in the form of which society appears on the second level. After, let's say, macro level of order, the meso level of practices and interaction, there are now questions on the micro level about who or what acts and interacts. It seems important, to me at least, to say that society does not stop, as it were, on the level of the intersubjective or interindividual, since the very practices instituting, maintaining, or changing order are essentially practices of individuals or subjects. In this sense, we might say, even if it might sound strange to some of you, society on this first level appears in or on the level of subjects, in the form of subjects or socialized selves. It is the most crucial, let's say, society effect to create members of societies that are and do exactly this, namely maintain a social order through their very practices by being what they are and doing what they do as subjects of this very society and understanding themselves as these very subjects, be it positively, namely endorsing, affirming a given order, or negatively fighting or contesting it. For this reason, any self understanding itself and relating to itself as a member of a society is, let's say, the smallest unit of the social, even if it's not the basis or not the foundation of social theory as some of the Bavarians might have it. The individual self is part of the social, but the social is not reducible to it. The individual does not explain the collective, rather explaining or articulating the social means reflecting on the relation between the individual and the collective, but as a relation between interrelated poles, society embodies itself, we might say, in subjects and their self-understanding, but this turns back on the meso-practice and the macro-orders that are enacted, interpreted, and transformed by subjects. Social philosophy, therefore, will also have to talk about the, let's say, autonomy, the Eigensinn, of self and subject without hypostasizing this in any individualist or subjectivist way. A social philosophy without a conceptual place for the self is not social philosophy at all, but only systems theory. But its interest in the self is directed towards the self-sociality, its place in society and its effects on society. It is addressed as a situated self, to use Sheila Benabib's phrase, or a self in context not only in its existential, reflexive, or moral dimension, but in its entanglement with the social frames in which it projects itself in relations to others, but in which it is also regulated and governed as much as it regulates and governs others. Therefore, what you have seen in this first part is an argument pertaining to three levels of the social. Society, I say, appears in three forms it appears as a totality of being determined or being ordered, society as order. It appears as a set of practices with a certain regularity that is capable of producing the social. This is society as practice. And society appears as or in subjects or selves. And my only claim in this first part is about the irreducibility 
of these three levels. I contend that doing social philosophy on the level of the question, what is society, has to take into account these three levels, but then has to take into account the three, let's say, occurrences, appearances of society, namely in the form of order, in the form of a set of practices, and in the form of a multiplicity of subjects. My second part, three fields of power. The remarks so far were, let's say, ontological, conceptual, because the three levels mentioned mark the point where social philosophy begins to ask and inquire the three terms, order, practice, subject, designate the sites of the specific relations that define or specify the social. What is seen and described on the, but what is seen and described on these respective levels? It seems obvious to me that on all levels, modern social philosophy tries to account for the very fact that there is simultaneously in a society social determination and social undetermination. This is a very technical phrase, I'm sorry. Or to put it differently, that things are as they are, but not necessarily so. This means social philosophy is interested in the fact that it is not for nothing that a given society has taken the shapes and the forms a given society has acquired, that this shape or form is neither natural nor necessary, but contingent on specific particular factors. And to account for this contingency means to account for the powers and forces that have instituted the social universe and made it so without it being necessarily so. All the classical narratives about social alienation or exploitation, about cultural illusions or about anomie, that means from Rousseau to Marx to Nietzsche to Durkheim, in this sense are variants of an analysis of power or forces trying to make sense of the fact that modern society took this course, how certain self-understandings, practices and institutions have emerged, and what this means for modern society and its subjects. Social philosophies, therefore, on a rather general level, inquires into three fields of power, again, now located on the three levels, respectively. So the basic thought here is, why does social philosophy talk about the very objects and relations on these different levels? Social philosophy is, I say, interested in why the things that are there on these levels are there, and the answer is power, but because power, in a modal sense, in a very conceptual sense, only refers to the thing that has made another thing possible. And therefore, social philosophy now turns to the three levels, order, practice, subject, and is asking which factors, which forces, have affected or affected or turned out to produce the very things that are there on these three levels. And again, I come up with a three-tripartite structure, three terms for the three levels, which are now referring to the three, as I call it, fields of power. And the first is called, and this might also be surprising, domination. Because the classical term domination or Herrschaft places far power on the first level, referring to the power of the social order, of its overall structure and its institutional form as a whole. And here it is absolutely irreplaceable. The term domination refers to the hard fact of order in its petrified form, 
When we talk of domination in the structural sense, we speak of the social form that has acquired a stability and autonomy that structures and regulates the whole of the social body. As a relation of domination, a society distributes agency and the possibilities and authorities to act to its members differentially and systematically. This, is, this means a society as a system of domination institutes the power of, let's say, classes, of groups, of identities, and this power can be personal, but not, must not be necessarily so. So social philosophy on this level is interested in these petrifications and institutionalizations of the social in its entirety, and it will try to account for the power effects regulating it. And in this sense, social philosophy on this level, turning towards domination as a field, will be an analysis and critique of domination, and that means a reflection on the entire social order as a figure of phenomenon of power. Second, of course, we also encounter power on the second level of specific practices, here now referring less to the overall structure as a whole and its petrifications than to some of their elements. Practice can appear as power when it becomes dominant, when certain forms of interaction repress others on certain patterns of practices emerge as hegemonic. And these processes close the potentially open character of the social into a coherent, more normative form, but not on the level of the whole structure, but on the level of some of the possible act of, the, of the actions possible within it. I propose to refer to these processes, or to this field of power, with a Foucauldian term, which is always dangerous, as normalization. Meaning by this, the powerful regularization of what can be done. Normalization is a figure of power because it makes a specific, narrow form out of a potentially richer, polyvalent, and open form, and because normalization distributes agency and the possibility to act in a certain way. Society appears as power on the level of practice when it narrows down the range of actions and interactions, when it attaches norms and worth to some of them, some of these practices, and takes it from others. These are looser, more flexible cases of power than on the first level for sure, but they are no less innocent, harmless, or ineffective, and they might even constitute the most effective mechanisms of power for regulating modern societies. And this is echoing a claim that many people, from Foucault to Elias, and many, many other social theories, were upholding that our societies might also be societies containing or embodying a certain domination structure, but that the set of practices or the normalized practices is the more important relais for exercising power in contemporary societies. Third, now even on the lower, the third level, we will find scenes or occurrences of power. If it is true that the self or the subject is a constitutive element of society, if it is also instituted and constituted as a necessary instance of being social, it must also be possible to describe this level and its coming into being as a sphere of power. As you all know, in English and French, the terms for becoming subject or subjectification and subjection lie close to each other, and many philosophers from Hobbes to Althusser have exploited this kind of semantic proximity. But also Hegel, Nietzsche, and Freud 
arguably the most important modern theorists of the subject, were proposing this essential social-philosophical line of thinking. The self or the subject only emerges in the context of unequal powerful interactions. It is, an, it is a product or an effect of power in the sense that it is born out of submission and subjection. Or put otherwise, being a subject takes place in the context of powerful, power-laden or power-ridden interactions. Power inscribes itself into selfhood. The subject is a site of power. This is probably what Hegel's philosophical image of the emergence of self-consciousness of out of serfdom points to. This is probably what Nietzsche was proposing in his genealogical reflections on the origin of reflexivity out of pain and sanction. And this is maybe even what Freud was trying to get at when he was explaining the emergence of conscience out of the interiorization of paternal authority. The self, then, emerges in the context of power and it will become what it is out of power. Power marks the subject. We will never lose this mark. For the context of my argument here, it is enough to maintain. For social philosophy, the subject is nothing prior to society, and of course no basis for society, but also nothing completely subjected to power, helplessly, as it were. It is a product and an effect of power in, that it has, in what it has become to be. And this means that power over selves or the power in selves or subjects is also necessarily, we might say, a major theme for social philosophy. And this is what the rather technical term subjectivation in the conceptual matrix I'm proposing should convey here, namely the social problem of, social, of power and self, which is the problem of the power of the social in or within the self. So to sum up, this section. The three terms, domination, normalization, and subjectivation, refer on the three respective levels of the social to three respective zones or fields of problems of power inherent on the three in the three levels. These three powerful effects of the social on order, on practice, and on the self are to be analyzed and laid bare. And to do this on the three levels, with a diagnostic sensibility for the rather different power effects, is part of the mission of a social philosophy that is based on something that Foucault and many others have called an analytics of power. My third part. Three possibilities of politics. If the reflection on, the thinking of society, as it has been proposed here, encounters three figures or forms of power, namely the dominating power of or in order, the normalizing power of or in practice, and the subjectivating power of or in the self. It is quite generally social philosophy, a reflection, an analysis, or what we might call a critique of power. And Axel Honneth has done exactly this. This term, critique of power, refers to an analysis that describes and assesses the effects of power while at the same time thinking about the costs, the price, and even the victims of a given constellation of power. In the terms proposed here, these costs or this price will be accounted for in terms of the possibility to act of agency that are weakened or strengthened, narrowed or extended, both on the individual and the collective level. The reflection 
reflections offered by social philosophies are critical in the sense that it is interested in the possibility or impossibility to act in or within a given order, within a given practice, or of specific subjects. In an older language, we might even speak of a practical or practical critical epistemic interest. And this is what Habermas in 1968 has called an Erkenntnisinteresse that guides the very interest or the very enterprise of social philosophy or social theory. And I think this is right. We are not interested in the social or in power, as it were, on its own sake or for its own sake. We are interested in revealing effects of power because effects of power impede action. And therefore, there is a practical interest, as Habermas has called it, that in a way comes with the very perspective on the social that I'm proposing here. Because thinking the social as a form or a set of forms of power means also to be interested in imagining other possibilities to act, other possibilities to cope with the forces and powers that are, and to use the space and the freedoms available and to evade non-necessary limitations. In this sense, the analysis of the power of or in society contains, on the three respective levels, a thematization, a reflection of three possible forms of, let's say, counterpower or counteraction, or we might also say of moments of collective or social determination. And this is where the perspective of social philosophy again changes, now from philosophy as a site of being determined to philosophy as a site of determining or self-determining, of acting, and of being conscious of its own, namely society's, own powers. The traditional name for this, of course, is politics or collective action. Social philosophy, therefore, I propose, from the logic of its very object, is logically led to its political dimension, present differently on the three respective levels, to the three problems of power from the second part, now correspond and really correlate three forms of acting otherwise or acting collectively. First, on the first level, order as a whole is now understood not as a terrain of being determined, structured, and petrified, but as a terrain that is in itself flexible, malleable, because it contains forces that make it transformable by itself. This doesn't look like a, an English sentence to me, I'm sorry. The effect of society is then taken to create the capability of a social entity to give itself a certain form, an order. It is taken as the power of self-constitution or self-instituting, reflecting on society as a whole. This is what happens on the first level, where we think society as order. Society is said to be capable of transforming itself, and this means thinking of it not as an agent of domination, but as an agent of self-transformation and self-determination. And it is here where social philosophy overlaps with or articulates the project of collective autonomy that traditionally is called democracy, at least in the wider sense. And the philosophers Castoriadis and Lefort maybe are here the best examples for this more ontological sense of democracy. This does not mean that social philosophy turns into democratic theory or into a theory of democratic government, 
but it turns into a reflection of society's capacity for self-determination and self-government. The term democracy here refers to the collective form of life or mode of collective existence of an entity that creates spaces for collective determination or of self-programming. And in the current debate, the term radical democracy often is used to refer to this non-regime side, let's say, non-institutional side of democracy. And this is why I adopt the term here and why I call this possibility of politics on the level of society as a whole, radical democracy. So there is an internal relationship of social philosophy as a critical enterprise to collective freedom of self-determination, and this derives from its objects of analysis and critique. Social philosophy does not desire or recommend democracy simply as a political choice, but it is led to think collective determination from its very object and perspective on it that reveals the internal self-transformability of society. And this might be philosophy's optimistic bit, even in the face of more somber or more dark diagnostic traditions from Marcuse to Agamben. It could be that social philosophy has to subscribe to the possibility of social self-determination, malgré tout. Second, on the second level, the level of practice, it was possible to describe the petrification or hardening of forms of action. Practice turns into a normalizing power where it relentlessly imposes a specific style or way of acting. But also this power is countered by another counter-conduct, another counter-practice that reopens this impasse. Max Horkheimer, in his famous essay from 1937 on tradition, traditional and critical theory, has spoken of a critical activity and kritisches Verhalten, which has society itself for its object, and that is, for him, the precondition for any emancipatory reflection on social conditions. For Horkheimer, the direction of this activity, this Verhalten, is clear and straightforward. It is a sense of social injustice and an endorsement of class struggle. But even more generally, looking at practice as a problem or phenomenon of power connects to these struggles that counter and contest powerful instrumentalizations or manipulations of social practices. A power critical social philosophy will look for instances of such counter-conduct and acting, acting differently, be they local, contextual, or dispersed. Again, these acts of resistance are not located on the upper level of the social as a whole. This would be democracy, as I have called it, or maybe even revolution, but on the meso-level of practices and collective action. These are now being described not in their power to normalize, but in their possibility of being altered, modified, and subverted. Such acts of non-conforming or non-normalized actions are social practices in the form of counterpower. They can be called resistance, this is what I propose, to refer to the performative or practice aspect in them. And the social philosophy sketched here will necessarily have an interest in and a sensibility for such resistant desires and possibilities. They show and reveal the potential for counterpower that lies in social practice itself. Social practice realizes itself not only in the reproduction of existing orders and norms, but can potentially at least also realize itself in their subversion and transformation, which might in turn have effects on the whole social structure and its order. 
third and last concept in this section. Also on the third or lowest level, there is a political element because also here there is a social entity, namely the self or the subject, that can be analyzed in terms of a specific power here called subjectivation, the powerful subjection of subjects under social norms and the invasion or penetration of subjectivity with social power. But also this problem of power has a significant counterpart or a counterpower now at the side of the subject being the smallest social unit society embodied in one person, as it were. What I have in mind here are moments of individual critical acts that are critical of the social, but that take place or are located in subjective life and that alter these subjects' lives. What happens in these acts is a wrenching from, a twisting from norms and models of selfhood, a stylization of the self against the social in acts of subjective resistance, we might say, that does not add up to a complete exodus from the social because this is impossible, because there's always already too much society in the subject. But on this level, at this side of the subject, these acts of resistance or self-transformation can take place, and they are irreplaceable because they involve subjective experiences and decisions, these utterly individual existential acts can then, of course, also have explosive social and political potential. And in 2018, I don't know if this also applies to you, we think about 68, of course, and what the specific historical event was. And for me, this is, anyway, clear that the critical event of 68 was playing itself out on all of these levels. I'm not so sure about Britain. In France, of course, this was almost a revolution. It was also a reversal of many, many social practices and a refusal of a whole set of normalizing practices that were there. But incredibly importantly, it was also a field of experimentation of lifestyles and the invention of new styles of individual existence. And this is what I'm thinking of when I say social philosophy is not only interested in the modification, changes, revolutions on the level of the whole, on the level of the set of practices, but also on the level of existence or subject or self. And self-transformation for me is the term that I reserve for these kinds of transformations, where I take the self in the term self-transformation as referring to the subject. What I'm thinking of here are acts of non-conformity and individual rule-breaking, existential experiments in living, we might say with Mill, that might involve aesthetic, utopian, spiritual, or other risky forms and styles of life in which the refusal of conformity with the current order and the current set of practices let appear a possibly a possible being different of society. These acts, however, individual and subjective, can gain political and social traction in that they create, however fleetingly, a vision of a different society as a whole. And we might say that the things of, or the, the elements that I mentioned of 68 that have achieved something in a way were successful on that level. And of course, many, many other were not. So I want to call this counterpower 
to the social in the self or on the side of the self, self-transformation, to refer to the acts in which the subject itself is transformed by itself. These acts testify to the fact that in the individual existential subjective case, society can be changed and that maybe even the great ruptures and refusals need a million of micro-transformations. Even a seemingly a social scene of individual dissidents is social through and through because its side or locus, the self, is social through and through. In such a scene, the social in the self, the sociality of the self, can appear as a reality in transformation or in process. I conclude. Social philosophy, as I imagine it, and I, as I have tried to sketch it here in its, let's say, conceptual grid or matrix, find its object on three levels, in three relational structures, in order, in practice, and in the subject. Social philosophy takes its object to be entangled with social struggles and power and conceptualizes, therefore, a threefold figure of phenomenon of power. And this is why it reflects on cases of what I call domination, normalization, and subjectivation. But it also finds, or rather requires, the thematization of actual counterpower of cases of social self-determination against the demands of the social. These cases are political in the wider sense because they, they have themselves effects on the social. They actively shape and transform it. And this happens in radical democratic acts on the level of society as a whole. It happens in acts of radical resistance on the level of practice. And it happens in moments of radical self-transformation on the subjective level. The power of order, the power of practice, and the power of self run up against counterpowers, against the democratic politicization of order, against the resistant politicization of practice, and against the self-transformative micropolitics of the subject. In describing, analyzing, and understanding these oppositions, social philosophy, I think, is not neutral, but solidary with its object, namely society, its practices, and its individuals. Doing social philosophy in therefore means to work on all three levels, in all three registers, we might say. And some methodological implications of this are rather straightforward. There is no sound social philosophy that does not contain some form of a philosophy of the social subject or of the socialized self, which is, by the way, missing from many, many other competing variants of social philosophy that are around. There can be no theory of social structures that is not mediated by an account of the practice character of these structures. But it also means to move from social facts to power to politics and to accept that the question of critique and normativity arise inescapably, that there is, at least from this angle, no non-critical, no non-normative social philosophy if you accept the very logics that I'm attributing to the three levels and fields. Is this the only way to do and understand social philosophy? Definitely not. Is it possible and coherent? I hope so. And where does it lead? We will see. Thank you.
take a five-minute break so get coffee.